Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden is calling on Congress to intervene and force railroad unions to accept a tentative labor agreement. He wants to avoid a potential rail strike ahead of the holidays. NPR's Jimena Bustillo reports Biden says a strike would hurt millions of working people. The president is taking a bold new step, asking Congress to step in. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi agreed. Biden asked lawmakers to send the bill ahead of December 9th. He urged members to not make final changes to the freight rail agreement because that could delay negotiations. Pelosi said the House will look to pass legislation this week to send to the Senate. Four unions, including the largest, have voted against the agreement, but if just one strikes, they all will. Biden touted the agreement's 24% wage increases and health benefits, but workers say the agreement doesn't address sick leave policies, a crucial sticking point in these talks. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Washington. The Senate is poised to vote later today on a bill codifying interracial and same-sex marriage rights. Democrats reached an agreement yesterday with Republicans to allow consideration of three amendments to the bill. The amendments seek to protect religious liberty. The marriage bill has already passed a procedural vote in the Senate with support from a dozen Republicans. That's enough for it to get past any filibuster. Virginia Democratic Congressman Donald McEachin has died. His office says he died yesterday of colorectal cancer. NPR's Giles Snyder tells us the congressman was 61. Congressman McEachin was first elected to Congress in 2016 after serving in the Virginia House and Senate. He was just re-elected to a fourth term, representing Virginia's fourth congressional district in this month's midterm elections. Voters will choose his replacement in a special election to be set by Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin. NPR's Giles Snyder reporting. A Kansas judge has blocked a state law. The law banned doctors from prescribing abortion-inducing pills by telehealth. This comes as Kansas clinics are overwhelmed with out-of-state patients seeking abortions. From member station KMUW in Wichita, Rose Conlon has more. Healthcare providers say the decision will help expand abortion access across Kansas, but it could be several months before they begin offering telehealth appointments. Zachary Gingrich-Gaylord is a spokesperson for the Trust Women Clinic in Wichita. Right now, our Wichita clinic is focused on trying to see as many people in clinic as possible. We're still receiving far more phone calls than we can answer in a given day. Anti-abortion rights advocates expressed disappointment in the decision, which they say was possible because voters recently rejected a ballot measure that would have stripped abortion protections from the state constitution. For NPR News, I'm Rose Conlin in Wichita. You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Dozens of Lowell residents are out of their homes after a massive water main break. Officials say the break flooded streets and homes yesterday afternoon. Paul Rital Yam is a Lowell City Councilor. He represents the Acre neighborhood where the break happened, and he says a complex that housed mostly seniors needed to be evacuated. The lights got knocked off. And then the firefighter with the flashlight and stuff like that, the guy resident down the stairs. So it's amazing sight, amazing in the way that, you know, these um, first responders are putting their lives online to help others to safety. The cause of the water main break is still being investigated.
Boston City Councilor Ricardo Arroyo will be reinstated as head of the Government Operations Committee. Council President Ed Flynn temporarily stripped Arroyo of the leadership position early last year. The move stemmed from decades-old sexual assault allegations. Arroyo was never charged and maintains his innocence. The Boston Herald reports the reinstatement does not include the title of vice president that Arroyo once held on the committee. A food pantry in Quincy will hold a grand opening for its new facility today, a facility it hopes can meet growing demand. The Quincy Community Action Programs says that since the start of the pandemic, it's seen an 87 percent increase in new households receiving food. CEO Beth Ann Strollo says the new facility will help deal with more requests for both food and other services including making sure people can get fuel assistance when they come in to get food, free tax preparation, financial literacy, counseling, family engagement workshops, helping people get SNAP. Strollo says the new building is large enough for people visiting the pantry to wait for food inside instead of outside in the cold. The New England Aquarium is taking care of sea turtles that experienced hypothermia in the frigid waters of Cape Cod Bay. WBUR's Paolo Mora reports the aquarium's turtle hospital in Quincy has received 150 patients so far. That's the sound of a sea turtle gradually warming up in a tank and recovering its ability to swim. The turtles also received treatment for injuries and diseases. Adam Kennedy is the director of the Sea Turtle Hospital. He says it's common for sea turtles to get stuck in Cape Cod Bay as they migrate south. But he says that numbers have roughly quadrupled since around 2012. So now we're seeing hundreds of turtles, uh, really where we used to see tens. Some turtles will be released in warmer waters and others will overwinter at the aquarium. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moura. It's 7.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. The Celtics beat the Charlotte Hornets 140-105 to last night at the Garden. The Seas will host the Miami Heat tomorrow. Tonight at the Garden, the Bruins will skate with the Tampa Bay Lightning. This afternoon at the World Cup, it's win or go home for Team USA. The American men will play Iran this afternoon, and they need to win in order to advance to the knockout stage. Increasing clouds today with a high in the mid-40s, mostly cloudy overnight. Temperatures will be in the 30s. A cloudy start tomorrow with rain in the afternoon. We'll also see some strong, potentially damaging wind gusts tomorrow across the region. The high will be in the upper 50s. Dry on Thursday. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 7.08. WBUR supporters include Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents.
Today is Giving Tuesday, a day to strengthen organizations that have a positive impact on your community. I'm Lisa Mullins. When you support WBUR, you strengthen journalism that's the oxygen of democracy. Please give by midnight tonight to be part of our Giving Tuesday match. Some members of our Murrah Society gave their money to make your support worth 50% more to us. Give at WBUR.org. You're listening to Morning Edition on WBUR. And as you heard Lisa say right there, this is Giving Tuesday. Coincidentally, coming up, we're going to hear about Pablo Eisenberg, an activist who asked critical questions about philanthropy and advocated for support of grassroots group. He died last month at age 90. And it's appropriate to remember him today as we're all giving what we can to support the organizations, the local organizations that make a difference in our lives. I'm Rupa Shanoi, and with me this morning, helping me tell you about WBUR and asking you to help out is Tiziana Deering. Good morning, Rupa. Yeah, you know, Giving Tuesday, and you have noted to me that it's a decade old now, really is a moment of transition that helps us recenter ourselves on what we value in community and be in community together. And uh, a group of our Murrow Society members wanted to create that particular moment because you start your day as you are right now Mm -hmm. with WBUR because we occupy a special space in your life and in the community. So they're offering a match, 50% more on your gifts. So if you give $10 a month, it becomes 15. If you give 20, it becomes 30 a month if you do it today. And that brings us together in a thriving democracy. The number is 1-800-909. 9287. The website, WBUR.org. One listener yesterday said, I support WBUR because high quality, rigorously vetted, ethically reported news is the foundation of our democracy. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for listening and for recognizing that on Giving Tuesday, it's an opportunity to show what's important to you and support your community with a 50% match. Again, 800 909 9287 or WBUR.org. Yeah, and that rigorous journalism. I don't know about you, but I spent a lot of time in newspapers and they really have disappeared in the time I've been Especially in journalism. local news is so understressed. Absolutely, yeah. And I feel like this is one of the few places where we're picking up that tradition and, and really keeping up the standard of local journalism when it's kind of disappearing everywhere else. And if you value that, if you want to keep it going, if you want to be part of it and part of a community that values that, think about how today is Giving Tuesday. And it's a day to recognize the institutions that keep your community educated and and keep it going. So give at 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. One more time, it's 1-800-909-9287. So I thought we were actually going to play a little bit of a sound element there. It's not that I'm not on my game. (laughs) I'm here with Rupa this morning in Studio 2. This is Tiziana Deering. And today is Giving Tuesday. And we are coming together today to ask you to show what you value with WBUR. We know you do. We know you listen. We know you go to WBUR.org and read. We know you come to City Space. We know you hear our podcasts. We live for showing up for you to bring you quality, ethically 
uh, delivered news and information. And today, some members of our Murrow Society have said, hey, join us. Let's do Giving Tuesday for WBUR, and we'll put an extra 50% on your money because we want to be in this together. Mm-hmm. 1-800-909-9287. WBUR.org. Join that group of Murrow Society members. Put a stake in the ground about WBUR today. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Again, that number is 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. Consider helping WBUR on this Giving Tuesday. We want to be part of your life. Thank you so much for being part of ours. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa, dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more, and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org donate. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Rachel Martin in Washington, D.C. China is cracking down on mass protests that broke out over the weekend. The protests drew on deep public dissatisfaction with the country's strict COVID controls. A Chinese government official blamed the unrest on, quote, forces with ulterior motives. We've got NPR's China correspondent Emily Fang with us. She joins us from Taiwan. Good morning, Emily. Good morning, Rachel. So the police are getting involved. What does that response look like? Right. They're doing a quiet cleanup of all the demonstrators. Basically, there's been an intense police presence on the ground. And then protesters tell me they're getting phone calls on their private mobile phones from police asking them where they were the last couple of nights and whether they continue to plan to go to, quote, illegal protests. And there have been spot arrests over the last day. If you go to sites where there had been previously demonstrations, they're now completely fenced off in Beijing, Shanghai, elsewhere. If you want to go for a walk there at night, you're definitely going to be asked your ID several times. And people, at least in Beijing, where I used to live, they're stopping random people and checking their phones for apps like Telegram and Instagram because video and information about the protests had been shared there over the last Hmm. couple of days. Wow. So they're clearly feeling the pressure from these demonstrations. Does that mean they are signaling in some way that they might ease up on some of these strict COVID rules? They've modified them slightly. So the southern city of Guangzhou said it would reduce some mass testing to conserve resources. They did not mention the demonstrations at all as a reason. The region of Xinjiang, where the protests began last week, said it was going to lift parts of its lockdown because it just didn't have COVID cases. And Beijing said it would no longer barricade buildings where they did discover cases and they would improve management of testing, but they didn't really offer many other specifics. In general, the overall direction of China's zero COVID policies has not changed at all. And there's been no official acknowledgement that these demonstrations even happened over the weekend. Hmm. All mentions of them are being deleted online. And when officials do mention them, they've been trying to discredit the protesters by claiming they were paid off by hostile countries like the U.S. This is a conspiracy theory with no evidence, but it's frequently trotted out in China whenever there are problems. And over the weekend, some protesters addressed this. Here's one protester shouting, how can we be a foreign force? We can't even access the foreign internet. How can foreign forces communicate with us? It's only domestic forces that are forbidding us from gathering and demonstrating. Hmm. Which is a brave thing to say out loud, frankly. So what does this mean with all this 
government intervention in these protests, are, are they going to subside? Are they going to stop now? That's what it looks like. It certainly looks like the heavy, heavy policing today is having an effect. There were some brave souls who tried to go out and protest late last night in the southern city of Hangzhou. But within minutes, there were literally more police than protesters, and they started dragging individual demonstrators away. Instead, these protests are actually going international. I've noticed that there are dozens of protests already in American and European cities, often outside Chinese embassies or on college campuses, where Chinese students and people are gathering in sympathy with the protests in China. And it's the force, it's these protests outside of China right now that are gaining force because people inside China can't get together. NPR's China correspondent, Emily Fang. Emily, thank you. Thanks, Rachel. The economic effects of the zero COVID enforcement that sparked these protests in China could be felt worldwide. Economist, economist Stephen Roach joins us now. He's a senior fellow with the Paul Tsai China Center of the Yale Law School. Stephen, even before these protests began, China was expected to see slower growth. Now, what kind of economic shockwaves could we see? Well, the lockdowns right now, by accounts I've seen, are impacting um, areas that account for slightly more than 25% of Chinese GDP. Uh, compare that with last April when um, uh, the Shanghai uh, impacts were at their maximum. That number was 21%. So uh, it's going to continue to have a significant uh, hit to uh, GDP growth. and. Um, China's growing right now at, at rates that um, are far short of its longer-term uh, trend, and, and that's a real problem for the world, which is also uh, heading toward recession uh, in Europe and possibly the United States next year. And China's President Xi Jinping, I'm sure he knows what you just told me, Stephen. So why, why continue them if, if it's hurting the GDP like it is? Autocrats uh, have a hard time admitting they're wrong. Uh, we know this policy is a complete unmitigated disaster, but at the end of the day, Xi Jinping wants to stand up and proudly boast that ch the Chinese system limited uh, uh, fatalities in a way that the West would only dream of. And um, he views that as his real mark of success, despite the, uh, the near-term problems. So he views COVID as a greater threat than a slow or a slowing economy. Well, he, he thinks that COVID containment on a near-term basis is a price worth paying for a shortfall of, of economic growth. And he's confident that the economy will bounce back. I don't share that confidence at all. I think post-COVID, the rebound is going to be very limited for a variety of, of reasons that I've written about. Why? But, why, um, why, why do you think that? Well, two things. One, the working age population is declining because of the demographic problems. And secondly, the productivity that really boosts the leverage of Chinese workers is also weakening and likely to get uh, worse. And, and I think that's a lethal combination for any economy. China is not uh, an exception to that rule. So how long do you think, Stephen, before there is a significant impact on the global supply chain? Well, we're already seeing it with Apple, uh, you know, the quintessential multinational uh, a producer um, is is reporting a major production shortfall uh, in the holiday selling season. Apple's already uh, diversifying some of its China exposure by actually surprisingly starting to make some iPhones in India. So these impacts are, are here and now. If you're an American company that has production in China and there's a shutdown near your facility, I mean, is, is that something that American companies need to start worrying about? 
Absolutely. You don't don't put all your eggs in one basket. China's been an extraordinary offshore uh, production platform for many multinationals, but uh, it's time to really think actively and seriously about a, a, a diversification strategy, and Apple is certainly an example of that. What are some of the other potential consequences outside of China's borders with all this? Well, uh, as, as China continues to suffer from uh, the gross shortfall of zero COVID, global demand comes down. That will provide some relief to the inflationary pressures and to uh, energy markets. So that's a welcome development for people worried about uh, in inflation. But uh, there's no mistaking the fact that uh, the world needs a China growth cushion. That was very important in keeping the world afloat in the aftermath of the global financial crisis of uh, 08 and 09. And uh, that's not going to be a, a supportive factor uh, going forward. And, and that's a disconcerting development. So how does Wall Street see this? You mentioned 08 and 09. Well, I think, you know, Wall Street views this as a, um, a negative for uh, uh, global economic growth, which is uh, clearly an impact on uh, recessionary trends uh, in the U.S. and uh, Europe. I mean, there's some talk, there's some talk that this is going to be a, a replay of Tiananmen Square, and that would be very disturbing for investors around the world. I think those fears are overblown. They're back in uh, 1989. There, there was a political uh, uh, rallying cry around the death of Hu Yaobang. That's not present today. Economist Stephen Roach with the Paul Tsai China Center of Yale Law School. His uh, new book is out today. It's called Accidental Conflict, America, China, and the Clash of False Narratives. Stephen, thanks. Thank you. Mexican authorities have raised a migrant camp just across the border from El Paso, Texas, where as many as 1,000 people from Venezuela hunkered down for the last month and a half. The makeshift settlement on the banks of the Rio Grande sprang up after the Biden administration blocked most Venezuelans from crossing the border to seek asylum. KTEP's Angela Cucherga reports. City cleanup crews tore down some 300 tents where migrants had been sleeping for weeks and tossed them into a dump truck to be crushed. Migrants watched as workers raked up their shoes, baby blankets, and other belongings they couldn't grab quickly enough after Mexican law enforcement authorities ordered them to leave over the weekend. Olmedi Escobar stood on the muddy bank, stunned. She asked tearfully, why are they doing this? She said Mexican officials forced her and her five-year-old daughter out of their tent. The head of the state of Chihuahua's Population Council, Enrique Valenzuela, said it's for the migrants' own good. We have been coming here for several days now, several weeks even, to let them know that this is no place for them to stay and that they are at a high risk of, well, not only uh, having health problems, but security issues also. Since the camp that migrants called Little Venezuela sprung up, temperatures have dipped below freezing. Many people have gotten sick. Authorities worry they could fall victim to crime, but migrants have resisted leaving. They say there's safety in numbers, and they want to stay right here at the border to cross the moment Title 42, the pandemic era restriction, is lifted, and they'll be allowed into the U.S. to apply for asylum. That's supposed to happen in about three weeks. So that's why many at the camp refused to board the buses Mexican authorities provided to take them to shelters in Ciudad Juarez, like friends Kevin Perez and Fabiola Teran. 
They said they don't trust Mexican officials and fear they'll be sent back to Venezuela. Teran held her seven-month-old son who was wrapped in a heavy blanket to shield him from the cold wind. They said they'd look for someplace else to stay while they wait for the day next month when they hope they can cross the border. For NPR News in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, I'm Angela Cocherga. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Holiday Pops, helping you prepare for the most wonderful time of the year by unwrapping the magic of the Holiday Pops, December 1st through 24th, holidaypops.org. You're listening to Morning Edition on WBUR. Coming up, we're going to hear from the European Union's top tech regulator who's overseen sweeping privacy regulations and spearheaded more than half a dozen legal cases against big tech companies. That reporting affects you. We know that you value it. And because you do, today is the day to give. It's Giving Tuesday, the day when we support the organizations we value. And you have shown us that you value us. Listener support is the foundation of our independent journalism because it is the largest share of our funding. We cannot say that enough. That's why your tax-deductible year-end gift is so important today. So take advantage of Giving Tuesday. You're going to hear about a a match that will make your money go even further. You will be giving us the freedom to report without worrying about what any politician or business person may say. So go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Again, 1-800-909-9287. I'm Rupa Shanoi, and I'm here with Tiziana Deering. That's right. And we are launching with Giving Tuesday today. One of our listeners, one of you who gave yesterday said, love WBUR for the great and up-to-date stories, news, and opinion. Have just a tiny bit to donate, but all donations will help to keep you on to keep us up to date. That's right. Even a small amount from you means so much to us. And today, a group of our Murrow Society members have said, hey, do that little bit and we'll put a 50 percent match on it because it's Giving Tuesday. The number to do that is 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. This is a moment when taking your time with the news is so important. On Point host Magna Chakrabarty talked about that and what her program adds to your uh, understanding and how it's important to get to the examination of the important stories of our time. What Americans need to understand is that it's not just Ukraine, that anywhere people are trying to stand up and fight for their sovereignty, for democracy. War can come to them, too. And that we have to be aware of that. We have to know that. We have to protect democracies wherever they are to allow them to flourish. Now, I don't necessarily think that he was saying the U.S. has to go and like militarily protect those places. But he was asking us to look more broadly, you know, uh, you know, at humanity as a whole rather than just in Ukraine. And Meghna talking right there about our international coverage from NPR. NPR is devoted to that 
coverage. It's committed to that coverage. WBUR and other public radio stations throughout the country invest in that reporting you hear from NPR, but we can't make our investment without yours. Voluntary contributions from our listeners fund our national, international, and local reporting, and we know you value that. I'm going to actually also use one of our listener comments that just came in. This is the quote. In the hype clickbait panic world of news today, I turn to WBUR and NPR for a calm, measured environment to learn about the happenings of the world around me. As a mom of two young kids, I have enough chaos in my life. Thank you for (laughs) making this a space for nurturing calm and reason while still calling out all that is wrong and unreasonable around us. I'm so So proud that she feels that way. That's what we try and do for you every morning. This is a critical time to be informed, which makes it a critical time to give a tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR. And like Tiziana said, it doesn't have to be a lot of money, $10, $20, $30 a month. That's going to do a lot for us. So give now to get your contribution matched. Our Murrow Society members, a group of them, gave their money so that your money would get go further. So get 50% more money added to your monthly contribution at WBUR.org. You can also give it, get in on the match when you call 1-800-909-9287. Again, 1-800-909-9287. You know, Giving Tuesday marks a moment where we shift our attention to community and to others during this time of year. It's one day, but it's an important day to show what you value. You're with us at 7.30 in the morning. We know you value WBUR. You can show it and get an extra 50% from a group of our Murrow Society members, but do it today, 1-800-909-9287. The website is wbur.org. We appreciate you, thanks. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features. Presenting Spoiler Alert, starring Jim Parsons, Ben Aldridge, and Sally Field. Based on the memoir, his life story became a love story. Directed by Michael Showalter, in Select Theatres Friday. And from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users, Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from Morgan Stanley, with their podcast, Thoughts on the Market, offering concise takes on current events and their implications for financial markets. Three minutes an episode, five times a week. Thoughts on the Market. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. NATO's Secretary General says Russian President Vladimir Putin continues to attack infrastructure in Ukraine because his troops are failing on the battlefield. Jens Stoltenberg was speaking earlier today ahead of a meeting of NATO foreign ministers in Bucharest. This is a critical time for our security, and we are sending an important message. NATO is here, NATO is vigilant, and NATO is ready to defend every inch of Allied territory. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is expected to address the NATO meeting later today. The Chinese government is boosting security following large protests in major cities and on college campuses. Demonstrators have been calling for an end to China's strict COVID controls. NPR's Emily Fang says some arrests are reported over the last day or so. 
If you go to sites where there had been previously demonstrations, they're now completely fenced off in Beijing, Shanghai, elsewhere. If you want to go for a walk there at night, you're definitely going to be asked for your ID several times. And people, at least in Beijing, they're stopping random people and checking their phones for apps like Telegram and Instagram because video and information about the protests had been shared there. The government in Beijing has announced no changes to its zero-COVID policy. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. A group of officers at the state's maximum security prison are now wearing body cameras. As WBUR's Deborah Becker reports, it's part of a two-phase pilot program. About 50 correction officers are now wearing the cameras at the Susan Baranowski Correctional Center. It's the first part of a $1 million pilot program and will focus on the camera technology. After an assessment, the second phase will test implementing the cameras more broadly. This marks the first time that correction officers are wearing such devices in Massachusetts. The Correction Officers Union opposed the program and has not commented on its implementation. Also, the Baker administration has awarded $2.5 million in grants to 32 police departments to increase the use of body cameras worn by officers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Police say the remains found in a South Boston apartment earlier this month are those of four infants. The chief medical examiner says they're the remains of two boys and two girls. The full results of the autopsies are still pending. No arrests have been made in the case. Today is Giving Tuesday when people are urged to support organizations they value. The state attorney general's office is warning people to beware of scammers who want to take advantage of their generosity. It suggests simple steps to confirm where your money is going. That includes verifying the charity's name and address. You can do so through the AG's new online portal, which tracks the status and finances of more than 25,000 nonprofits in the state. It's 734. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. You can give the gift of a holiday meal for just $30. Donate at gbfb.org slash WBUR. The Celtics routed the Charlotte Hornets 140 to 105 last night at the Garden. The Seas have won 13 of their last 14 games. They'll host the Miami Heat tomorrow. And the Bruins are back at the Garden tonight to take on the Tampa Bay Lightning. It'll grow increasingly overcast today as temperatures rise to the mid-40s. Tonight, skies remain overcast and it falls to the upper 30s. There's a chance of rain early tomorrow morning, then cloudy and near 60 with some gusty winds that might cause damage. There's a good chance of rain in the late afternoon. Right now, it's 33 degrees in Boston at 735. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages three and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com NPR. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting, your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Rachel Martin in Washington, D.C. Big soccer game today. 
It's a match between the U.S. and Iran at the World Cup in Qatar. I was about to correct you, Rachel. It is a match, and this highly <laughs> anticipated showdown will determine which of the two teams advances to the next round. There's also concern about the growing political tension surrounding the match involving disputes between Iranian fans and the soccer federations representing the two countries. NPR Sports correspondent Tom Goldman is in Doha, Qatar, and joins us now. Hey, Tom. Good morning. It's pretty much make it or break it at this point for the U.S., right? Pretty much. You know, this this is such a biggie. Um, it will determine which team moves into prized territory, the knockout round, the final 16 teams, where every match is a win or you're out contest. And for most teams, it's a measure of success to get to the knockout stage. Now, the U.S. has to win to advance. Iran's situation a bit easier. It can draw and still move on. Then there's the big picture for the U.S. Advancing would be validation of the last four years under Coach Greg Berhalter, basically showing that the U.S. is on the right path after the disaster of failing to qualify for the last World Cup in 2018. Berhalter mm -hmm. acknowledged yesterday it's probably unfair to have four years come down to one match, but it's the reality, and he said, we'll deal with it. So what should we look for? Well, Iran showed it's capable of sustained aggressive play and its impressive win over Wales. It won that uh, match 2-0. Yeah. Uh, U.S. captain, team captain Tyler Adams said he expects more of that attack mentality today from the Iranians, although there's some thinking that since Iran could advance with a draw, it may play a bit more conservatively kind of hang back and then strike with counterattacks, knowing that the U.S. is uh, going to be aggressively looking to score throughout the match. What about the U.S.? I mean, at this point, they actually need to win a soccer game. Not yeah, <laughs> they have they have played very good defense um, in this World Cup. Burhalter says that's kept them in the two matches up to now that they played. But he acknowledges what many say: the U.S. has to find ways to score. Uh, the team has only scored one goal in the first match against Wales, and the problem seems to be twofold: players not delivering quality final passes that can be knocked in for goals, and also when those passes are there, players aren't finishing the job and scoring. As you say, that has to change because the U.S. can't win this thing without a goal or two or more. Yeah, let's go for more. So that's the actual game. Um, let's talk about the political backdrop because we have seen protests against the Iranian government throughout the World Cup are more likely today. Well, we're expecting an increase in security after the clashes between Iranian fans here, fans who support and oppose the Iranian government for its crackdown on protests in Iran following the death in September of a young Iranian woman in police custody. Then you have the flag flap after the U.S. Soccer Federation doctored depictions of the Iranian flag on social media, an action that prompted the Iranian Federation to say the U.S. should be kicked out of the World Cup. And now it's being reported families of the Iranian players are being threatened with imprisonment and torture if the players join in any way the protests against the Iranian government. You remember the players refused to sing during their anthem before the first match against England. Mm -hmm. They sang before the Wales match after that, reportedly after being visited and warned by members of Iran's Revolutionary Guard. So, mm -hmm. Rachel... There you go. A soccer match fraught with meaning and possible risk. And from a strictly football standpoint, one that promises great excitement. Indeed. NPR's Tom Goldman at the World Cup. Thanks, Tom. You're welcome. She's been called the most powerful regulator in Europe. Marguerite Vestager is Silicon Valley's biggest antagonist, and she has her hands full these days investigating everything from Twitter and Elon Musk to the metaverse. NPR's Bobby Allen sat down with her in her office in Copenhagen. 
The tax lady who really hates the U.S. That's how former President Trump once described Marguerite Vestager. She said she agrees with the first part of that statement. Well, actually, I kind of like the tax lady because, you know, tax fairness is something I really, really, really take to heart. Fairness is a word Vestager throws around quite a bit when you talk to her about her job as an executive vice president of the European Commission. A major part of her role is making sure no one tech company gets too powerful in Europe. And she's done quite a lot. Eight pending legal actions against Silicon Valley giants, multi-billion dollar fines against those companies like Apple and Google, spearheading two tech laws that experts say could rewrite the rules of the internet. Those are the big ways she's fighting the tech industry. She notes some small ways too. She tells her family, if I see an Amazon box around the house, I'm not taking it to the recycling bin. I will take out the cardboard, but not with that logo on it. The daughter of two Lutheran pastors on the Danish coast, Vestager doesn't seem like a politician when you meet her. She greeted me in her office wearing running shoes, and she offered me a big smile and a warm cup of coffee. When it comes to the tech sector, she hearkens back to her roots and talks in biblical terms. Technology may be new, but the behavior is as old as Adam and Eve, because what we see here is still a question of power or greed. And reigning in power and greed is the aim of the two pieces of landmark tech regulation she helped shape, the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act. The laws threaten even more huge fines against large tech companies for things like not removing hate speech and squashing competition. Too often, she says, Meta, Google, Apple, Amazon have abused their power to get ahead. She's often asking tech executives this question. Why do you find that it is necessary to take a shortcut, bend the corners for us to get the suspicion that you're doing something illegal? Apple, for one, says it works to comply with EU laws. And CEO Tim Cook once called the Vestier fine, quote, total political crap. Of course, that's not how she sees it. Fines are one thing, but Vestier says the EU's crackdown also packs a reputational punch. Because it means a lot as to how you're seen by, of course, the financial market, but also how you're seen by, by employees, how you're seen by customers. Even if the U.S. had its own version of Vestayer, it would be trickier to regulate what people post on the platforms. For example, the First Amendment protects speech even if it's offensive, whereas hate speech is illegal in most EU countries. I think it's fair enough to say that we want to protect minorities from hate speech. In Germany, I think it's illegal to deny the Holocaust. I think that's absolutely fair enough. These are democratically legitimate decisions. In the U.S., what's allowed on, say, Twitter is decided by, well, Twitter. And that's a company that's been on Vestayer's mind a lot lately. Since Elon Musk took over the social network, promising to make it a greater place for free speech, Vestayer has been closely following along. She has a message from Musk as he revamps the rules of the platform. If you offer your services in Europe, there is a European rulebook, and you should live by it. Otherwise, we have the penalties, we have the fines, we have all the assessments and, and all the decisions that will then come to haunt you. She's called some of the things Musk has proposed fundamentally flawed, but Musk has promised to abide by European rules. Bobby Allen, NPR News, Copenhagen. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, Dolly De Leon, an actress not so well-known outside of the Philippines, is leaving her mark globally in a leading role in the acclaimed movie Triangle of Sadness. To listen, stream NPR on your smartphone, computer, or just listen to us on the radio. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. 
the MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. WBUR's independent journalism is essential to our democracy. Listener support is what keeps WBUR independent. It's the largest share of our funding. As you make tax-deductible year-end contributions to organizations that make a positive difference in your life and in our communities, put WBUR on your list. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Daryl C. Murphy right there, the host of WBUR's new culture and news podcast, The Common. It's an incredible new resource that you can get free every day to know what you need to know. And and it enriches your life and the lives of people in your community. And that music had me boogieing a little bit. (laughs) I know, I was seeing that. I'm impressed that it's 7.45 in the morning. You Time to going. wiggle. <laughs> so we need to tell people that if you, you, you value what we bring you here on the radio and in our podcast. So today on Giving Tuesday, we are raising money that brings you all the programs you listen to. Daryl C. Murphy and me here on Morning Edition. Uh, so please consider giving $10, $20, or $30 a month. Your tax-deductible year-end gift will come back to you in the form of stories and conversations that matter to you. So give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Rupa Shanoi, and thank God, Tiziana Deering is here with me. <laughs> Boogieing away with you this morning. I'm so glad you brought up the, the storytelling. You know, today's Giving Tuesday. A group of our Murrow Society members have offered a 50% match on your gift. So give this morning, and your $10 a month gift becomes 15 Your $20 a month gift becomes 30 And that storytelling is so important to what we do for you here at WBUR. I'm going to let Robin Young from here and now tell you a little bit more about what is at the heart of that reporting and storytelling that you get from WBUR. Well, I think we've seen in the past few years why public radio matters so much. I mean, call us kind of nerdy, but we have a dedication to fact-checking, to the truth, to hearing all voices, to making sure that we amplify voices that aren't getting heard with a lot of the bombast that's coming at us. There are things that you hear on public radio with the way the broadcast landscape has changed that you just don't hear in many other places. So I I think people have come to really feel the value of public radio. I don't mind being nerdy. Uh, unabashedly nerdy. Yeah, Thank nerds you, are cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'm nerdy every morning here on Morning Edition. You value that. We know you do because you're listening right now. So please think about giving at to support WBUR at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Some members of our Murrow Society, which is a group of people who are devoted to keeping WBUR funded and and going in the right Thriving. direction. That's yeah. right. Yeah. They have put up their money to match yours 50% to make your money go further. And if you do that, I don't know about you, but if I do things early in the morning, I get them done. If I wait for them later in the day, doesn't happen. Yeah, no. Plus you get the satisfaction. Yeah, they of get on the list for list. the next day. That's right. Yeah. So, think about it. Do it this morning, then you won't have to think about it later today. Give at WBWAR.org or call 1-800-909-9287.
Giving Tuesday is a special day. Yes, it's a created day for giving, but it's also a moment to mark our shift in focus to others. Um, You rely on us. We are with you in the morning, right? Maybe we're with you at the end of the day. Maybe you also go online, come to City Space. However you engage with W. Listen to the common. That's right. Listen to the common. Listen to Daryl. Listen to Rupa. Today is the day to show that you're a part of this community Mm -hmm. and that you value this community and you can be in community with members of our Murrow Society, the group who gave this match, 50% more on your gift. The phone number, 1-800-909-9287. The website, WBUR.org. It's quick. Please do it now. And thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. Late last Tuesday, six people went to work at Walmart in Chesapeake, Virginia, and never came home. As NPR's Sarah McCammon reports, last night, residents of the city gathered to remember them. At the vigil hosted by the city of Chesapeake in a local city park, six crosses lined the stage in honor of the victims. They died after an overnight supervisor at Walmart opened fire, then turned the gun on himself. Flanked by more than a dozen police officers providing security on either side of the stage, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin quoted passages from the Bible and offered prayers for the victims. And we pray that Lorenzo, Fernando, Randall, Kelly, Brian, and Tanika will be blessed in paradise. Youngkin made no mention of gun violence, though he alluded to another mass shooting in Virginia earlier this month. Also on stage was Bobby Dyer, mayor of nearby Virginia Beach, which experienced its own mass shooting in 2019. Chesapeake City Councilman Don Casey read the victims' names. The youngest was 16-year-old Fernando Chavez Barone, who Casey said was working to lessen the burden on his family. The oldest was Randy Blevins, age 70. He was a wonderful family man. His favorite holiday was Thanksgiving because he would have the day off from work and could spend time with his family. But not this year. Blevins, Chavez Barone, and their co-workers were taken from their families just two days before Thanksgiving, leaving empty seats at many tables this year and for years to come. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Chesapeake. The Tuesday after Thanksgiving is known as Giving Tuesday, a day to give back after all the post-holiday shopping. A man named Pablo Eisenberg spent much of his life trying to make sure high-end philanthropic giving actually made a difference in the world. He died last month. Here's NPR's Sasha Pfeiffer. To give you an idea of what Pablo Eisenberg was like, listen to Bill Shamra of the Hudson Institute introduce him in 2015. Pablo, for those of you who don't know him, is aptly described as a doyen of U.S. philanthropy. I think doyen is French for pain in the neck. 
Eisenberg was a nonprofit leader, professor, and social justice advocate. He was relentless in insisting that charitable givers, especially mega donors like Warren Buffett, can do better. That message often rankled in the rarefied corridors of private philanthropy. Here's Shambra again. Pablo just did not live by the rules of decorum that govern philanthropy and nonprofits. Many nonprofits depend on donations, so they're reluctant to criticize donors, even if the criticism is justified. Not Eisenberg. He famously was willing to bite every hand that ever fed him. And he was completely willing to tell them that they should be appalled at their stinginess. Eisenberg led a nonprofit called the Center for Community Change and helped create the National Committee for Responsive Philanthropy, which monitors charitable giving. He preached that not all donations are created equal. A gift to Harvard is not the same as a gift to a community college. His politics were to the left, but Shambra said Eisenberg had special ire for liberals who claimed to champion the underdog, yet exclude those little guys from their decision-making. They were perfectly willing to speak for the poor, but they didn't want the poor <laughs> in the same room with them. I mean, he was infuriated by that kind of hypocrisy. Based on Eisenberg's upbringing, you would have expected him to run a private foundation, not find fault with them. He was born in Paris in 1932, went to Princeton and Oxford. Later, he worked in government and nonprofit roles focused on social change. He quickly chafed against the unspoken strictures of this polite sector. Now there's more of a critique of philanthropy, but 30, 40 years ago, he was mostly supposed to be quiet and say thank you, thank you, and be full of gratitude. Stacy Palmer is editor of the Chronicle of Philanthropy. She's one of countless people who'd get fiery, unsolicited phone calls from Eisenberg. He'd grill her about stories she covered and vent about misguided charity. He especially was angry that Bill and Melinda Gates weren't focusing all of their attention on the poor in the United States and doing so much overseas. He felt like they had enough money that they could do both. Ray Madoff also got those outraged calls. She's a Boston College Law School professor who studies philanthropy. Eisenberg would fume about how little the IRS and state attorneys general police charities. I was going through my notes from him and they were like, Another AG whitewashing. And this one will get your blood boiling. Another stupid grant from the top-named foundation. I mean, these were his emails to me. Madoff said that unfiltered quality made him endearing to some and disliked by others. And he called out reporters, too. He said, you know, too often journalists are just cheerleaders for wealthy donors. And anytime anyone gives money, they say, isn't that great, without actually looking at the impact of that type of giving. Eisenberg lambasted the Washington Post for its uncritical coverage of billionaire David Rubenstein's multi-million dollar gift to the National Zoo's panda program. He said, help people, not pandas. Joining us now is Pablo Eisenberg, a senior fellow at the Georgetown Public Policy Institute. This is Eisenberg on NPR's Talk of the Nation in 2006. He's speaking with host Neil Conan about how cloistered private foundations are. Their boards of directors are basically elite, and they rarely have teachers, ministers, grassroots leaders, social workers. He said the absence of those voices results in a narrow type of charitable giving. I knew Eisenberg because I used to cover nonprofits and philanthropy. When I'd talk with him, he'd lament, investigative reporters are getting laid off, government regulators don't regulate. He told me, quote, 
the field is wide open for crooks and scandals. Even if you disagreed with him, the Chronicle of Philanthropy Stacy Palmer said, he made you think about your charitable giving. What do I care about? What's most important? It's easy to say, let's give money to the pandas. They're super popular and cute. But, you know, who are the people who are getting neglected? Pablo Eisenberg died last month at age 90. He described himself as a cynical optimist. Cynical enough to question everything, optimistic enough to devote his life to social change. Sasha Pfeiffer, NPR News. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack Repertory Theater, presenting A Christmas Carol, a new adaptation highlighting Dickens's time in Lowell, November 30th through December 24th, MRT.org. If what you just heard there in that story reflects how you think about charitable giving, think about supporting WBUR today on Giving Tuesday, the day when we, oh, it's a manufactured holiday, as Tiziana Deering, who's looking at me right now, said earlier this morning. But, I mean, it's an altruistic one. It's one where we're asked to be good to our community and enrich the, the structures around us. We want you to do that for WBUR. So please go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Get into the seasonal spirit. Get into the Giving Tuesday spirit. Give us a call. Go to the website. Show that you value WBUR and you are a thoughtful investor in the institutions in your community. Tiziana Deering. So, you know, it's funny. I was thinking, Rupa, when I was a nonprofit leader, uh, Sasha Pfeiffer was covering nonprofits here and covered me, right? <laughs> and covered organizations with a sharp eye and a critical question. Um, and she matters, right? And now we bring her to you on NPR. She was a local reporter here first. Um, so much of what we bring you is that combination of cynicism, question everything, <laughs> and optimism, belief in community. And in an act of optimism, a group of Murrow Society members here at WBUR has said today's the day. If you give on Giving Tuesday, we will match your gift at 50%. So if you can do a one-time major gift of $500, it will be 750 to WBUR. If you can do a monthly gift of $10, it will be 15 a month to WBUR. And it matters deeply for our work. 1-800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. This is Laura Dern. If there is a world on the other side of a wall somewhere where artists run free and journalists share a point of view, educate us into alternative opinion and voice and it's used beautifully and there's opera and Sesame Street and National Public Radio I want to be on that side of the wall so thank you National Public Radio I pray that you're supported forever we need you it's how I get my news it's how I get to know about human behavior it's how I thanks to people like Terry Gross learn about film and invention and I care deeply about it, and I never, ever want anyone to feel anxiety about losing voice in our uh, beautiful democracy. Laura Dern right there talking about our beautiful democracy and how critical information accuracy is so important right now, a free resource where anyone, even those who can't maybe give right now, 
can go and know that they're getting reliable information, complete information, unbiased information that they need to know in order to be responsible members of their society. Help them if they're having a hard time right now. You can help them uh, cover their expense and make sure that we keep having this resource of WBUR. We want to keep bringing it to you. We need your help. And when you help today, your monthly support of WBUR gets 50% bigger because a member, members of our Murrow Society have gotten together to say that they want to match your gift 50%. So whatever you give, 50% will be added on top of it, and it will help WBUR. So get in on the match. Call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. That is muscle on your money on a day (laughs) where the community is asking you to put a little bit of support behind what you know is important to you what you know is important to your community. We know you care about WBUR. You're listening to us right now. You're giving us the privilege of being a part of your day. Mm. Because you care, put a little extra muscle behind that money here on Giving Tuesday, a 50% match on that $10 a month gift, that $20 a month gift. The phone number, it's quick, I promise, because it is 8 a.m. 1-800-909-9287 is the phone number. WBUR.org is the website. We appreciate you. Do it now. And thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. And Huntington Theater. Give art, culture, and community. Gift the Huntington. Gift certificates, seat plaques, flexible packages, and more. HuntingtonTheater.org slash gifts. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden is urging Congress to head off a potential nationwide freight rail strike. From member station KCUR, Frank Morris reports a rail strike could begin as early as next week. The Biden administration hammered out a tentative agreement between railroads and unions two months ago, but it doesn't have the authority to impose it. Congress does. It could delay a strike or even dictate terms of a labor agreement to the unions and railroads. If freight trains stop moving, so does about a third of the cargo shipped in the U.S. Most Amtrak passenger service would come to a halt. Biden says the strike would, quote, devastate our economy. The sticking point isn't money, but what the unions say are harsh work rules that penalize workers for calling in sick. Railroads have enjoyed strong profits this year, but workers say they've suffered to produce that windfall. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris in Kansas City. NATO foreign ministers are meeting in Romania to talk about supporting Ukraine through the upcoming winter. Ukraine's foreign ministry is pleading for more weapons to fight Russian forces. Terry Schultz reports he's also asking for help for Ukraine's damaged energy infrastructure. NATO chief Jens Stoltenberg is urging allies to increase their support for Ukraine as it suffers the brutality of Russia's strikes on the country's infrastructure. Stoltenberg calls this the greatest security crisis in a generation, reminding NATO governments that while they may be facing financial difficulties, Ukraine is paying in lives lost. Our message from Bucharest is that NATO will continue to stand with Ukraine for as long as it takes. 
we will not back down. Allies are expected to offer Ukraine not only weapons, but also non-lethal support, including electricity generators, winter gear and medical supplies. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is pledging substantial aid for Ukraine's energy grid. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. Election officials in Luzerne County, Pennsylvania, did not certify the vote yesterday from this month's midterm elections. The Luzerne County Board of Elections deadlocked on the certification vote, and Democratic member Daniel Schramm did not vote to break the tie. He abstained. Schramm said that's because he had heard that some people in the northeastern Pennsylvania County had been unable to vote on Election Day. I needed a little more information, so I really didn't want to say, oh yeah, we're done with it now. I wanted more information so I can make a sure decision on that it's right to certify it. He now says he has assurances that few, if any, people were prevented from voting. The election officials in Luzerne County, Pennsylvania, will vote again tomorrow on certifying the election results. Separately, there's been a delay in the certification of votes in southeastern Arizona. Republican election officials in Cochise County have put that certification off until Friday. That's even though no legitimate problems in voting were identified. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The company in charge of cleaning up the Pilgrim nuclear power plant is moving ahead with plans to dump contaminated wastewater into Cape Cod Bay. The 1.1 million gallons of water was used to cool spent nuclear fuel rods. More now from WBUR's Barbara Moran. Holtec Senior Compliance Manager David Noyes said the company will ask the Environmental Protection Agency to change Holtec's wastewater permit so they can discharge at least some of the water into the bay. But responding to a question at last night's public meeting of the Citizens Advisory Panel, Noyes seemed to leave the door open to Holtec not waiting for the EPA. And there will be no discharge prior to the resolution of the permit issue? Um, I, I can't say that. A spokesman for Senator Ed Markey said the senator would work to, quote, ensure that there is no unsafe discharge of radioactive water into Cape Cod Bay. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says she believes the city has responded well over the past couple of months to the arrival of hundreds of migrant families seeking shelter. On WBWAR's Radio Boston, Wu commended the growing cooperation between city, state, and private agencies to find temporary housing for the new arrivals. What has happened in the last couple weeks has been great and amazing. There's been a real acceleration of the urgency and actual housing spaces created and coordination among different providers. The mayor adds it's important to apply that same sense of urgency to others in the state who need help, including people living near Mass and Cass in Boston and people on waiting lists for public housing. The federal government wants a former Natick Town official to spend 30 days in prison for her role in the January 6th Capitol riot. Suzanne Ayani pleaded guilty back in September. Prosecutors say she organized a bus trip to the Capitol, then was among those who stormed the building. Ayani is scheduled to be sentenced on Friday. At least six New England venues have pledged not to take a cut of performers' merchandise sales, including Deep Thoughts and Jamaica Plain. A musicians' union launched a campaign last month asking music venues to make that pledge. 
WBUR's Amelia Mason reports. The Union of Musicians and Allied Workers is encouraging venues and festivals in North America to sign a pledge promising to end the common practice of taking commissions on merch. Canadian rapper Roly Pemberton, who helped devise the campaign, says he's played gigs that took as much as 30 percent of the money he made selling merchandise. Merch is probably the most important thing for a touring musician in regards to, you know, making a profit. And I think when you start seeing these merch cuts, it's just devastating. More than 400 performance spaces signed the pledge in a U.K. version of the campaign earlier this year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia Mason. It's 8.08. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa, dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more, and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org slash donate. The Celtics beat the Charlotte Hornets 140-105 to last night at the Garden. Jason Tatum led Boston with 35 points. The Seas will host the Miami Heat tomorrow. Tonight, the Bruins will host the Tampa Bay Lightning. And it's win or go home today for the U.S. men at the World Cup. They'll play Iran this afternoon. Increasing clouds today with a high in the mid-40s, mostly cloudy overnight. Temperatures will be in the 30s. A cloudy start tomorrow with rain in the afternoon. We'll also see some strong, potentially damaging wind gusts tomorrow across the region. The high will be in the upper 50s, dry on Thursday. It's 34 degrees in Boston at 809. WBUR supporters include Focus Features presenting Spoiler Alert, starring Jim Parsons, Ben Aldridge, and Sally Field. Based on the memoir, his life story became a love story. Directed by Michael Showalter in Select Theaters Friday. It's time to make your tax-deductible contribution to WBUR and get in on our Giving Tuesday match. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Giving Tuesday is a day when you recognize the organizations in your life that support your community and enrich the people around you. WBUR does that for you every morning in many ways. I don't know. Tiziana Deering is here with me. I'm Rupa Shanoi. I'm not sure if you saw the WBUR Today newsletter just came out with some really useful information about getting the new COVID booster. Apparently, most people in the state, even Massachusetts, haven't gotten a booster. And they're offering $75 gift cards for anyone who gets their shot this holiday season. That is what I would call news you can use. (laughs) So if that's important to you, we know you value that. And on Giving Tuesday, Day, you can feel good this morning by doing your part. So call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. And Rupa, I want to talk about this match for a minute because a group of our Murrow Society members have said it is so important to show your support for WBUR on this day that we will put some of our money forward to match yours. Mm-hmm. So a $10 a month gift becomes 15 Hey, here's one for you. 15 becomes twenty two fifty a month. $20 gift becomes 30 And those small amounts make huge differences. On Point's uh, Magna Chakrabarty, our friend Magna, talks about how much that contribution of 10 or $15 a month can create something so much bigger. I love climbing the mountains of New England, especially partial to the New Hampshire ones. So, you know, when, when you get to the top of Mount Monadnock or any New England mountain and you see the, the cairns there, the little pile of rocks that people have added every time someone summits, and you put your your rock on the cairn. It always reminds me of my absolute favorite Disney movie of all time, technically Pixar, but Disney movie, Moana, 
really love that film. And there's a scene in Moana where she goes to the top of the mountain on her island with her father. And there's a cairn there at the top of the island. And it's every, every chief uh, that her people have ever had. And he says, when you, he says to Moana, when you lay your stone on top of this island, you raise us all higher. And to me, in a sense, that's what great journalism does, and that's what contributions to great journalism do. Your contribution is like that stone added to the edifice of public service journalism. And when you add that stone, it lifts us all higher. It makes our journalism better. And so that's why I think it matters. It matters to give. Um, because you make a, it makes a big difference to what we can do uh, and how we can serve people, um, and it lifts us all, our entire community. Magna explains it so well, right? Yes. It's a great visual. If you want to be a rock in the cairn, if you want to be part of the special project that we're doing, this is about getting together with the people around you to be part of your community, to recognize the institutions that enrich the, play, the people and places around you that keep an eye on the things that are important to you. Think about giving to WBUR on this Giving Tuesday and think about the match. Moral Society members are going to match your contribution 50% so you can feel good about having it go even farther. Uh, farther or further? I always wonder about that. I um, know, and I would pretend that I know, but I always get confused. Yes, okay, so I'll ask about that. Meanwhile, now is the time to give to WBUR. So call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org and have your contribution matched so it does more for WBUR. That's right. Today is a day to lay your stone on top of the mountain. That's what Giving Tuesday is. It's a day to say, I will mark today what I value for myself, my family, and my community. Lay your stone on top of the mountain and support WBUR, not only for yourself, but for your community. Not everyone can right now. And our group of Murrow Society members who have created the match for today have said, we'll help elevate everyone. Mm -hmm. So if you lay your stone on the mountain today, with a $10 a month match gift, excuse me, a $15 a month gift, a $20 a month gift, they will raise us all 50% further. It's a powerful metaphor. It also happens to be true. <laughs> so the phone number is 1-800-909-9287. The website is wbur.org. At 8.15 in the morning, it is time to do it now. Don't wait till later. And thank you for supporting us. We appreciate you. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season on stage through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Rachel Martin in Washington, D.C. The Supreme Court's decision this summer to overturn the constitutional right to abortion has raised questions about how vulnerable other civil rights laws could be. Today, the Senate is set to vote on legislation that would protect same-sex and interracial marriages. As NPR's Barbara Sprunt reports, it's a top legislative priority for Democrats while they still control both chambers of Congress. The Respect for Marriage Act would not force states to issue same-sex marriage licenses, but would require them to recognize same-sex marriages performed elsewhere. On the Senate floor Monday, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said passing the legislation would be a big step forward. 
We all know that for all the progress, though, we've made on same-sex marriage, the rights of all married couples will never truly be safe without the proper protections under federal law. And that's why the Respect for Marriage Act is necessary. Opponents to the legislation argue it threatens religious liberty and that a 2015 Supreme Court decision already guarantees constitutional protections for same-sex marriage. Here's Republican Senator John Cornyn of Texas on the Senate floor Monday. This idea that we have to pass this legislation in order to preserve what has already been recognized by the Supreme Court as a constitutional right, that this is based on, frankly, a scare tactic. He said while the bill raises questions on religious liberty, it, quote, does not move the needle on same-sex marriage. And there's no reason to believe that this decision is in in any imminent jeopardy. But Democratic Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon pushed back on that idea, pointing to the Supreme Court's decision over the summer overturning the constitutional right to an abortion. Some members of this body have questioned why we need to pass this bill when marriage equality is the law of the land. The answer is pretty straightforward. The Dobbs ruling, which overturned Roe versus Wade, showed that the Senate cannot take any modern legal precedent for granted. Twelve Republican senators have already supported this legislation on procedural hurdles. And a deal was struck Monday to allow votes on amendments from three Republican senators aimed at protecting religious freedom. If the bill passes, it will then go to the House, where it's expected to pass easily, before being sent to President Biden for his signature. Barbara Sprint, NPR News, Washington. The people of Venezuela could soon receive some relief amid a long political crisis. The government of embattled President Nicolas Maduro and its opposition over the weekend agreed to establish a U.N.-managed humanitarian fund. As much as $3 billion in frozen Venezuelan assets could go toward medicine, food, and other aid for the country's citizens. Now, in response, the U.S. eased some oil sanctions on the country. It is a significant development four years after a widely disputed election in which Maduro declared himself the winner. For more on this, we turn to Jason Marzak. He's the senior director of the Atlantic Council's Adrian Arsh Latin America Center. All right, first get us up to speed. Why were these talks taking place to begin with? Well, these talks are taking place right now because of the fact that Nicolas Maduro has decided to return to the negotiating table a year after he left the negotiating table. Uh, These negotiations in Mexico City uh, originally uh, were said to take place uh, last year uh, when the U.S. extradited one of Maduro's close associates, Alex Saab, from money laundering. Nicolas Maduro pulled out of the negotiations. The negotiations that started this weekend in Mexico City are actually the result of months of secret talks in Caracas to be able to reestablish these negotiations, which included the announcement this weekend, not just of the negotiations, but as mentioned, the humanitarian agreement that would be administered by the United Nations. When it comes to the sanctions, uh, the Biden administration is lifting some of the oil sanctions on Venezuela. Does that mean that uh, years of their sanctions have not worked? Well, what it, what it means is that the sanctions are sanctions are meant to force change in uh, in, in a particular government or, or entity, and uh, these sanctions, the oil sanctions in particular, the the Chevron sanctions, have been meant to force action on the on the part of Maduro. The lifting of the sanctions of the oil, a limited oil sanction lifting this past weekend, will allow for Chevron to begin to. Uh, uh, ex- uh, export uh, oil only into the United States. Uh, it does not authorize the payment of any taxes or royalties to the government of Venezuela itself. Um, but what it also shows is that 
sanctions, it shows Maduro that sanctions can be lifted if he takes the right actions to be able to alleviate the suffering of the Venezuelan people. Now, of course, there's many other sanctions that remain in place. There's uh, five other categories and multiple sanctions that date back to 2006. Um, so the, the hope is that by lifting these initial sanctions, it'll show Maduro that there can be a light at the end of the tunnel, and it'll force additional action from Maduro that helps for the Venezuelan people's uh, suffering. But at the same point, these sanctions can also be immediately snapped back at any point mm -hmm. if Maduro does not comply with the terms that were outlined this past weekend. So aside, Jason, from going back to the negotiating table, what other actions does Maduro have to do? Well, the negotiating table has to produce results. And that is absolutely key because Maduro has historically used negotiations to stall without any intention of agreement. I'm hopeful that this time might be different. Uh, what, what is looked for at this point is looking to the 2024 elections. Uh, these are going to be incredibly consequential presidential elections. And one of the key aspects of the negotiations is to get Maduro to agree to the basic tenets of a free and fair election so that the opposition parties actually have a chance at being able, being able to compete fairly in, the, in that election. So we're talking 100 percent transparency, openly monitored. That's what, we're, uh, that's what uh, is the goal for 2024. Yes, and not just transparency, but also allowing political parties and, and politicians and, and, and civil society and others to actually participate in the electoral process. The problem is most of the opposition politicians have fled the country in, in the last few years, along with the 7 million other Venezuelans, because the, if, they, if they stay in the country, they risk being uh, locked up in jail, uh, isolated from their loved ones for years. And so it's not just about the transparency of the elections, but it's actually about leading up to the elections and providing the conditions for op opposition to actually be able to participate. Maduro's word hasn't been one where anyone could really trust it, um, Jason. So what what would change? What what makes the Biden administration think that that could change this time around? Well, what's absolutely fundamental is not just Maduro's word. What's actually fundamental is uh, verifiable implementation of any agreement that is made at the negotiations in Mexico City. But by verifiable, what does that mean? It means that there's uh, independent commissions that are helping okay. to ensure that any, anything that's agreed, whether it's the humanitarian fund, ensuring that the money that is administered by the United Nations is able to uh, actually reach the Venezuelan people, or that any agreement with regard to the elections is actually monitored by an independent monitoring bodies and uh, independent election observation. That's Jason Marzak, Senior Director of the Atlantic Council's Adrian Arsht Latin America Center. Jason, thanks. Thank you. The U.S. Supreme Court is hearing arguments today in a long-running dispute over how to enforce this nation's immigration laws. The Biden administration wants to set guidelines around who can be arrested and deported by immigration authorities. But a group of states, including Texas, argue that those guidelines could prevent authorities from doing their jobs. NPR's Joel Rose reports. For years now, the guidance about immigration enforcement has swung sharply from one administration to the next. Under former President Trump, immigration authorities were empowered to arrest and deport anyone who was living in the U.S. without legal authorization. Here's the acting director of ICE, Thomas Homan, testifying before Congress in 2017. If you're in this country illegally and you committed a crime by entering this country, you should be uncomfortable. You should look over your shoulder and you, you need to be worried. When the Biden administration took office, it put on the brakes. Instead of arresting and deporting anyone they encountered, immigration authorities were given a whole new set of priorities. Here's Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas in an interview last year. We have guided our workforce to exercise its discretion to focus on 
individuals who pose a threat to national security, public safety, and border security. Mayorkas framed this approach as prosecutorial discretion. Since ICE doesn't have the resources to arrest or deport all 11 million people in the country without legal authorization, its officers should use their discretion, he argued, to focus on the biggest threats to the public. The president of the American Immigration Lawyers Association, Jeremy McKinney, agrees that's the right thing to do. You have to make choices. All that the Biden administration was attempting to do was make choices, just like every administration before it. There had been official immigration priorities at DHS before, but this announcement prompted a major backlash from immigration hardliners who argue these priorities go far beyond what any previous administration had done. They went way left on this. So it's almost like the Immigration Nationality Act don't exist anymore. That's Thomas Homan, the former head of ICE, during an interview last year. Part of what outraged Homan and other hardliners about the Biden administration's priorities is that simply being in the country without authorization is not, by itself, generally enough justification to arrest or deport someone. Christopher Hayek is with the Immigration Reform Law Institute in Washington, which filed a friend of the court brief before the Supreme Court. Saying that someone cannot be removed just because they're an illegal alien is a drastic change in our immigration law, and it's not within an agency's power to do that. Only Congress could do that. That's an argument that the states of Texas and Louisiana made in court. A federal judge in Texas agreed and threw out the administration's priorities in June. But former DHS officials of both parties are worried about the implications of that ruling. They also filed a brief expressing their concerns to the Supreme Court. Not everyone can be arrested or put in proceedings, and so tough choices have to be made. Julie Myers-Wood was the head of ICE during the George W. Bush administration. She's also a former federal prosecutor. Wood says every law enforcement agency exercises discretion about how to deploy its limited resources. And those decisions are too important to leave up to individual field offices. What you don't want to see is a situation where a particular office is focusing on all non-criminal arrests simply because they are easier or more convenient to the detriment of individuals that have serious criminal histories. Wood says she might not have chosen the same priorities as Secretary Mayorkas, but it's clearly his call to make. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the all-new 2023 Subaru vehicles are arriving. Love is out there. CitysideSubaru.com. This is Morning Edition on WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi, and I'm with Tiziana Deering this morning to tell you about Giving Tuesday, the Tuesday after Thanksgiving, when we give thanks for the nonprofits in our life that enrich our communities. We here at WBUR give thanks for you. You make what we do here possible every day. You are the reason we're on the air. Every morning here at Morning Edition, our team does everything we can to make sure you have 
the accurate information, everything you need to know to start your day. Give thanks for us by showing you want that vital, unbiased, fair, and balanced coverage to continue. Be part of Giving Tuesday and be part of your community by contributing to WBUR. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You mean the world for us. Uh, Increasingly, we rely on your support here at WBUR to bring you the quality news and information you rely on, on air and online, the events that you care about at City Space. I'm thinking about uh, the, the, you know, all the primary debates that we did that were available mm-hmm. to the public at City Space. All of those things rely on you. And today, a group of our Morrow Society members have said, "Let's show how important this is. We'll put 50% more behind your money. That is a lot of muscle <laughs> on your gift. So a $10 gift becomes 15. A $10 a month gift becomes 15 a month. A $20 a month gift becomes 30. A $500 gift becomes 750. I'm so glad I can leave that. That math to you. Please I'm happy to do it. 1-800-909-9287 and WBUR.org. You matter. Listening to WBUR, especially right now, is really important for me so that I can just focus on what's going on and have some thoughtful analysis of what's going on in the world as well as domestically. The fact that the news is global keeps me in touch with what is happening around the world in a manner that I've come to know as being balanced, thorough, and extremely interesting all the time. It's very easy with everything that we are juggling in our normal lives to get caught up in just our own little bubble. And there's no way to reach out and find a new trusted news source unless somebody brings it to you. And WBUR is that trusted news source. They do the sourcing and make sure that what information makes it to me is vetted, is accurate, and that I'm not wasting my time when I'm listening. WBUR is rooted in listener support. Give monthly at WBUR.org. Thanks to the trust and generosity of our members, WBUR has one of the strongest local newsrooms in the country. I was somewhere recently, I'm not going to say where, Tiziana, but it didn't have a local NPR newsroom like this. And I looked for it, and when I didn't find it, it felt like a huge hole. It felt like a missing link and a, a vital, lost, vital community connection. And You've made sure that hasn't happened here. We're going to continue to count on you as we look to the future. We know you want to be part of keeping this important service coming to your community. You can count on us. We need to know that we can count on you, too. Make a modest investment that will become something much larger and get it matched 50% today. Give a tax-deductible year-end contribution before the year's out. And hopefully this morning, at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. We connect you to your neighborhood, to the country, to the world. We're grateful to be a part of your daily life. Today on Giving Tuesday is the day to show that gratitude. And a group of our Murrell Society members have said, we want to show ours by giving your money more muscle, 50% more on your gift. So do it this morning before the day starts. 800-909-9287 or WBUR.org. And thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Keeper, a secure password manager designed to protect with strong encryption against account takeover, ransomware, and cyber theft, used by millions globally. Learn more at KeeperNPR.com. And from Fisher Investments, 
Fisher Investments team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at AthenaHealth.com. This is NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. A vote in the Senate is expected today on a bill to protect same-sex and interracial marriage in the U.S. Here's NPR's Giles Snyder. Senate passage would be a bipartisan victory. A dozen Senate Republicans have been helping Democrats move the bill forward, putting it on track to passage. But since the Senate has made changes to protect religious liberties, the bill would have to be sent back to the House before it's sent to President Biden's desk. President Biden is expected to urge Congress to prevent a nationwide freight rail strike when he speaks in Michigan later today. A strike could begin as early as next week. Officials in Hawaii say they've issued no evacuation orders as the Mauna Loa volcano erupts for the first time in nearly 40 years. Scientists say the volcano is shooting lava 100 to 200 feet into the air and emitting ash. But Governor David Ige says there's no imminent threat from lava flows to communities near the volcano. It will definitely be a week's. Uh, before it would be moving into any um, populated areas. Mauna Loa is the world's largest active volcano. In Texas, a boil water notice has been lifted in Houston. Officials say the city's drinking water is now safe for the more than 2 million people who'd been under that advisory since Sunday night. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. The Baker administration is giving money to more than 30 police departments in the state to increase the use of body cameras. Those departments will split $2.5 million in funding. Meanwhile, a group of officers at the Maximum Security Sousa Baranowski Correctional Center have started wearing body cameras. Officials say they'll be watching that pilot program to see if the technology improves safety and transparency in the department. Fundraising committees spent nearly $67 million on campaigns for the four Massachusetts ballot questions this year. State filings reviewed by the Eagle Tribune show a large majority of the money was involved with question one. That's the ballot question which will raise taxes on incomes over a million dollars. Spending on this year's ballot question campaigns was up about 10 percent over 2020. A federal appeals court is upholding the conviction of the former mayor of Fall River. Jaisal Correa was convicted last year of fraud and extortion charges. He began serving a six-year sentence at the federal prison in New Hampshire last April. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. Help make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate at gbfb.org WBUR. The Celtics topped the Charlotte Hornets 140-105 to last night at the Garden. Boston has a 13-2 and record this month. The Seas will host the Miami Heat tomorrow. Tonight at the Garden, the Bruins will face the Tampa Bay Lightning.
It'll grow increasingly overcast today as temperatures rise to the mid-40s. Tonight, skies remain overcast and it falls to the upper 30s. There's a chance of rain early tomorrow morning. Then it'll be cloudy and near 60 with some gusty winds that may cause damage. There's a good chance of rain in the late afternoon. Right now, it's 34 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed. Designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at UMA.com NPR. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Rachel Martin in Washington, D.C. Good morning. High inflation has Americans paying close attention to how much we all spend on groceries. And now two of the nation's biggest grocers are planning to merge, becoming a supermarket giant big enough to compete with Walmart. Kroger is trying to buy Albertsons for $25 billion. Safeway, Harris Teeter, and Fred Meyer would all be part of the same corporation as a result. Some lawmakers are concerned about how that might affect consumers. Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota is one of them, and she is among the group of senators holding a hearing on this today. Senator, thanks for being here. Well, thanks so much, Rachel, and it's great to be on to talk about what, as you know, is beyond grocery stores, whether it's Ticketmaster, whether it is tech companies. We are seeing so much consolidation mm-hmm. in our economy from cat food to caskets. And this is one big example of it. So let's talk about this. Um, how put help us put this particular proposed merger into context. If this grocery store merger goes through, how many communities would be affected? It would affect literally every community in the country because so many communities have one of these stores or could have one of these stores in the future. So look at what the Kroger's brands are. Kroger's has Kroger's. Uh, it has uh, Food for Less. It has Harris Teeter, Fred Meyer, King Supers, Ralph's. Albertsons has Albertsons, Safeway, Balducci's, Jewel, Osco, um, you name it, Pavilions, Vons. And when you combine them, it's the number one and number two grocery stores in the country. The FTC will be ultimately making the decision on this proposed merger. But we have hearing Senator Lee, you know, conservative Republican, Mike he and I are mm-hmm. Yep, we're holding a bipartisan hearing. And the whole focus is let's get the information from these two CEOs and other witnesses under oath, helpful for the FTC to make its decision, but also for the senators because we're considering legislation uh, relevant overall with antitrust given the changing economy that we're seeing right before our eyes. So, what do you expect it has on costs and quality? What are, you, what are you worried about, Senator? I mean, is there evidence that this merger goes through and automatically prices go up? Well, what you're worried about, first of all, these stores have already come forward and said, you know, we are directly competing with each other, so we would have to divest at least 375 stores. That means sell them off. This was tried before by Albertsons in the past, and what happened was the, the company they sold them to, uh, of the 100 divested stores, um, as a result, 100 of them, of the 150 stores, 100 of them were actually 
closed for good. 8,000 people were laid off. So that means potentially there will be communities with fewer grocery stores, you're saying. Exactly. And you have got areas in our country, maybe not where everyone lives that's listening, but that have have no access. They maybe have one store. They maybe have two stores. And one-third of the grocery stores have closed in the last 25 years, leaving over 10% of Americans in low-access food areas. So, and that's rural and urban. And, you know, it's not the same thing as they may argue today to go to, say, a CVS and and try to find some food in there. Yes, you're going to be able to get milk and a few other items, but it's certainly not the same thing as having access to fresh food um, and the like. So what specific questions are you going to ask today? Well, we're going to ask about how the proposed merger will affect consumers, number one question. Number two, how are they going to handle these stores that they divest, and will there be even more? Uh, number three, we still don't have the number on when you look at the grocery store market and you don't include things like restaurants, we still don't have the number of what their combined dominance will be, number one and two. So we want to get that number because they are throwing in a bunch of things that we don't believe are the same. Um, and then their commitments to lower prices and improve wages. If this does go through, what are they going to do with the cost savings they get from combining the companies? Are they committed to lower prices and improve wages? Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, we so appreciate your time. She is helping to chair a hearing today on a proposed merger between the two largest grocers in the country. Senator Klobuchar, always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Rachel. It was great to be on, and thank you for covering this issue. It's like the biggest issue that not everyone is talking about, monopolies. And it's start. you're starting to see the effects throughout our nation's economy. I believe in capitalism, and we must have competition. Thank you, Senator. Some 164,000 people's votes for the midterm elections in Arizona and Pennsylvania may end up not officially counting. That's because local officials missed the legal deadlines for certifying the results in their states. Here's NPR's Hansi Lo Wong. It's a kind of vote by an Arizona County Board of Supervisors after an election that usually doesn't get much attention. Chair votes aye. All those opposed? Nay. Nay. But those nay votes by Republican officials meant they refused to certify more than 47,000 Arizonans' votes in Cochise County on Monday, despite finding no legitimate problems. That's raised alarms, including with the Democratic chair of the county's board, Ann English. I'd like to say that um, there is no reason for us to delay. And for most of the country so far, there's been no delay and no trouble with getting the midterm election results certified. But in Pennsylvania's Luzerne County, the local Board of Elections deadlocked along party lines on whether to make some 117,000 ballots official. One of the Democrats on the board abstained from voting, though that official told the Associated Press later on that he planned to support certifying at another meeting later this week. And that would be after the state's legal deadline. These are antics that are not allowed under state law. That was Tammy Patrick, a former Arizona election official who's now a member of the National Task Force on Election Crises, speaking to reporters last week. In fact, Arizona's Secretary of State is now asking a state court to force the Cochise County officials to certify the election results by Thursday. It's a kind of post-election controversy that, after the chaos in 2020, Patrick had expected. The certification would be another mundane, banal 
administrative procedure that was going to be leveraged and used for partisan potential gain or partisan rhetoric, at least. And that's what we're seeing here. And what we may be seeing next is more unusual delays as officials in Arizona get ready for the statewide certification deadline next week. Anzi Wong, NPR News. Coming up later today on All Things Considered, until recently, many of China's younger generation, millennials and Gen Zs, were considered apolitical. Now many are taking part in why protests in the country against China's strict COVID policies. To listen, stream NPR on your smartphone, your computer, or just listen to us on the radio. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products located in more than 60 communities in and around greater Boston. ALPrime.com. My name is Layla Falden, and I'm one of the hosts of Morning Edition and the Up First podcast. I started as an overnight newspaper reporter at the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, found myself on a plane to Baghdad a year later covering the impact of a U.S. invasion, occupation, and war in that country, then traveled across the Middle East and North Africa with short trips into Europe sometimes, and then back to the United States covering this country, its divisions, the things that unite and divide people. I get the privilege and honor of going into people's homes, of listening to people's stories. That's a gift. I think it's incredibly important to keep those in power accountable, but also to spend as much time speaking to those impacted by the policy decisions. That, for me, is what I bring to the host chair. I'm Leila Falden. Support this NPR station today. Here's how to give. Give by going to WBUR.org or calling 1-800-909-9287. I am such a super fan of Layla Fadel. She does such incredible reporting, has such incredible experience. That's what you have made possible. And on this Giving Tuesday, when you show your support for the organizations you value, we're asking you to make sure Layla Fadel's reporting remains on the air, along with the great reporting on WBUR from Anthony Brooks, Steve Brown, Deborah Becker, Amelia Mason. You know these names because you listen every morning and you depend on them to deliver to you what you need to know about your community. Show your support for that important service. Give a tax-deductible year-end contribution at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. This is Morning Edition, and I'm Rupa Shinoy, and I'm here with the lovely Tiziana Deary. Well, thank you, especially at 845 in the morning. (laughs) I'll take that. On Giving Tuesday, and I'm glad to be here on Giving Tuesday because this is a day about showing what you care about, about turning your attention to community and to the things that we value. Um, And today, a group of our Murrow Society members has said, we value WBUR so much that we invite you to make your gift at 1-800-909-9287, and we'll put a 50% match on it. We'll make it 50% more. This is Amory Sievertson, co-host of the WBUR podcast, Endless Thread. For thousands of people across greater Boston and beyond, WBUR is a lifeline, a reliable, trusted source of news, facts, analysis, and truth. When you support WBUR, 
You strengthen and extend that lifeline. You protect WBUR as a resource for a whole community of listeners who rely on us. Becoming a supporter of WBUR means that every story, every interview, every second of breaking news, and every moment of joy you hear, you made that possible. You gave that to everyone who turns to WBUR to help them understand our region, our nation, and our world. So please, go to WBUR.org and make a contribution to WBUR for yourself and for your community, for someone who might not be able to give. You are our lifeline. Thank you. Like Emery said, we bring you stories that reveal important truths. And they're not just news stories. They're not just, you know, stories about police or stories about the community. They're also stories that bring joy. They're also stories about business, about health care, about the environment, the wind industry. They're everywhere. They're everything you need to know, these local stories that no one else is telling. So we're reporting with a newfound intensity we've never seen before because we know how important the service is right now as our democracy struggles to keep going, to maintain its level of, uh, you know, education and information. Thanks to our members, WBUR has one of the strongest local newsrooms in the country, but we need your help to maintain it, your financial support. And again, it doesn't have to be a lot. Just $10, 20 or $30 a month will have a huge impact here at WBUR. We will be so grateful and you will be part of your community. So give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287 Keep us on the radio. Keep us bringing you this important service. And thank you so much. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans start as low as $0 per month with new benefits like enhanced dental coverage. BlueCrossMA.com slash go. Now, in business news, Cambridge-based Strand Therapeutics is receiving a $45 million investment from pharmaceutical giant Eli Lilly. Strand says the money is meant to bring the startup's new cancer drug into clinical trials next year. After 75 years in business, Lindsay's Family Restaurant in East Wareham is closing for good. Owner Sherry Lindsay says the closure of the popular seafood spot is due to staffing shortages. It's 848. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The science is clear. The warming climate will cause sea levels to rise and storms will become more violent in the coming decades. Some places will inevitably be destroyed by climate change. As WBUR's environmental correspondent Barbara Moran knows more than most people about the crisis, but that hasn't made it any easier for her to decide whether to sell a beloved beach bungalow that's been in her family since the 1930s. To help mark the 10th anniversary of WBUR's Ideas and Opinions page, here's Barbara's essay, which first aired in 2021. A few days before my father died, he sat up in his hospice bed and pointed to a framed photograph on the dresser. He was reaching for a photo taken at our family beach house, 
the small white bungalow his father bought in 1934 for $750. When my dad died in March, the house became my responsibility, and soon I'll have to decide what to do with it. The bungalow is in Breezy Point, a beach community in Queens, New York. It's a long, skinny sandbar of a place that's separated from Brooklyn by a narrow bay. If the name sounds familiar, it's maybe because Breezy got hit hard by 9-11, partly because so many firefighters live there. And it got walloped by Hurricane Sandy. About 350 homes out of 3,000 were destroyed. After Sandy nearly ruined our bungalow, my dad built it back without flood protection, not wanting to spend the extra money. Now, when I see it squatting on the sand, I think it's no match for the next big storm. Everyone tells me I should sell it, and they're right. I tell myself to sell it, and I'm right. I believe the science, and I know the water is coming. Climate change drives a hard bargain. Some communities will be saved, and some will be left to succumb to the sea or the desert or wildfires. Breezy Point may find a way to mitigate the coming crisis, but most likely it's on borrowed time. The smart thing to do is sell the house. And yet, when I sit on the porch, I can hear the bell of the channel buoy swaying in the bay. The logic of science, the checkbook calculations, they have no power here. As Pascal said, the heart has its reasons, which reason does not know. This place is the thread that holds me to my father, whom we buried with a seashell in his casket. My grandmother, that smart-mouthed, long-legged, garvy girl. My grandfather, son of a Galway man. All that mad tribe of Brooklyn and my wider, dimly-lit tribe across the sea. I stand on the wet sand and look across the Atlantic, squinting to see them. The water thunders and swirls, cold and gray, my sense of loss and longing a thousand fathoms deep. They're with me here, all of them. It feels right to stay and take my chances with the sea. Barbara Moran is climate and environment correspondent for WBUR. You can read her essay and many more at WBUR.org. As we usually do on the first day of our fundraisers, we're going to peel back the curtain and talk about WBUR's role in your life and your role in WBUR's life. And the best person to do that is our CEO, Margaret Lowe, and she's here with us now. Good morning, Margaret. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Hi, Rupa. It's always so nice to be here with you. Today happens to be Giving Tuesday. Can you talk about kind of the feeling about that and how that plays into WBUR's mission to be part of a community? It's a lovely question. I mean, I think Giving Tuesday is one of those days where people think, I should do something today. I should actually think about the organizations that mean something in my life, and I want to help make a difference. And there is something about people coming together to help support organizations they believe in, like WBUR. And I read a lot of correspondence from people who rely on us, sometimes from our most devoted listeners, and they say things to us like, 
even on the very worst day, WBUR makes sure to remind me that humanity still exists. They tell us that we make the world a better place. They tell us that we're their lifeline, that we are the news source they trust most. People really rely on us and I think also in a meaningful way feel a relationship to WBUR and we feel a relationship to them. And so whether it's Giving Tuesday, which is a wonderful way to inspire people, or any other day of the week that you feel like WBUR is worth your time and worth your contribution. And as you mentioned, it is a season of giving. It's a time when a lot of organizations are asking for help. Why WBUR? Why should people give to WBUR as compared to other organizations? You know, I have a great love for a great many organizations myself, and so I don't want to say WBUR above all else because I, like you, Rupa, have lots of mail at home asking me to commit dollars to an organization that I believe in, and I try to do that. BUR is an essential public service, and we actually help make sure that people have reliable, trustworthy, independent news and information. It's important to say that the largest portion of our funding does come from listeners and people who rely on WBUR, and that can be $5 a month, and it can be $5,000 a year, and it can be $50,000 a year. Every little bit really makes a pretty gigantic difference. When you think back um, the last year, what stands out most to you? What are you most proud of, of what we brought listeners? I'm proud of so much. I'm a little bit like a proud mother, so it's sort of hard to say, okay, which child do you love best? I love them all. But we have done some really magnificent work. We were investigative and we shed light on how some police officers in Massachusetts who were fired or resigned amid allegations of misconduct, they simply got jobs in other departments. And now advocates are calling after our reporting for more police oversight. We reported on how a Massachusetts law that was intended to protect victims became a gift to abusers. We revealed how Massachusetts homebuyers are paying thousands for title insurance, but most of the money isn't going to insurance. You know, these are deep investigative stories. These are shoe leather reporting. They take time. They take intensive care to get them right and to make a difference. And these are the kind of stories that have an impact. And then there are so many other pieces, right, like podcasts and newsletters. Talk about that a bit. One of the things that strikes me when I talk about WBUR is that we are so much more than a broadcaster, right? That is core to who we are. We've been broadcasters for nearly 75 years. But today, we are a broadcaster. We have live events in city space where we introduce our audiences to artists of color transforming our cultural landscapes. They grace the stage of city space where we also discover new music, new books, and new ideas. Just the other night, I sat in City Space and watched NPR's Tiny Desk concert winner Alyssa Amador sing as though she were in her own living room to a packed house. The Common is our brand new daily podcast hosted by Daryl C. Murphy. It's a vivid take on what's unfolding news-wise and culturally in the region. We have Circle Round, which is folk tales for young children and parents who are young at heart, like we all hope to be. We have Cognoscenti, which is our ideas and opinion page. And I guarantee some of the most stunning writing I see and I read widely, I find in Cognoscenti, which captures deep 
beautiful lyrical writing on some of the most urgent topics of our time. And, and I it's celebrating it. 10 years this year. It just turned 10 years old this year, and it's really made a mark in Boston. What are the challenges to keeping all those balls in the air as we face inflation and hard times? So WBUR is not alone in facing inflation. Everybody's confronting what it means to their pocketbook and what they can afford and what they can't afford. And obviously, producing the kind of high-quality coverage that we produce costs significant amounts of money. And so if I have one thing that keeps me up at night is... WBUR has been around for nearly 75 years, as I said, and and my job is to make sure that WBUR is here for the next 75 years. And it's not guaranteed. We really do rely on people to dig deep and help fuel what we do. WBUR CEO Margaret Lowe, thank you so much for spending some time with us and really helping listeners understand what we bring them and how we want to be part of their lives. Thank you, Rupa. It is a delight to talk to you. CEO Margaret Lowe talking there about the values that guide us and our priorities, priorities that we think about every day as we strive to deliver to you accurate, complete news. I'm Rupa Shinoy, and I'm here with TCM Deering on this Giving Tuesday when we're all encouraged to think about supporting the institutions that are important to our communities. You listen to WBUR every morning. You know what it does for Boston and the region. We are your community, and together we invest in making sure our community has the accurate information it needs to make informed decisions. So please give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. You'll hear much about Giving Tuesday today, that day when we show what's important through our philanthropy. Today is a day to give to WBUR, and a group of our Murrow Society members have said, join us. Do it today, and we can give you a 50% match. So a $10 a month gift becomes a $15 a month gift. A $1,000 one-time gift goes all the way to $1,500 if you do it today mm. on Giving Think Tuesday. Big. That's right. The phone number, one 800 The website, wbur.org. The moment now, Giving Tuesday with a 50% match. Show your support for WBUR now. And thank you. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.